One time I was drunk on a morning show in Montana. The host asked me if I had a nickname. Said my friends called me the Dirtbag King. She said on the air I started giggling. Hasn't had me back, but now I've got this podcast. Welcome to my podcast. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. My name's Charles Ellsworth, and you're listening to A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. If you're not familiar with me, that's all right. You're definitely not the only one. I'm a songwriter first, musician second, somewhere down the line filmmaker. Pretty much I just like to tell stories. Some people have called me a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and I'm definitely semi-professional at everything I do. Nothing single-handedly makes me a living, but it all adds up to getting by. Thank you so much for tuning in to A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. This is your host, Charles Ellsworth, and I am stoked to have you all here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I know I just said that. I say thank you a lot. I think having gratitude as a part of your day-to-day life is an important part of maintaining your mental health. At least for me, it is. So, thank you. And also, thank you to our guest this week. My friend Mike Brenner stopped by, or actually, I stopped by his place. I made the trip down to Philadelphia to interview him and last week's guest, Joe Reinhardt. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And yeah, it was a great day going to Philly. Got breakfast with my friend Sam. Haven't seen him in a while. We sat in a park and ate some some egg and sausage sandwiches and talked about life. And it was beautiful. I love you, Sam. I don't even know if you listen to the podcast, but I still love you. Um, and then, yeah, I went and interviewed Mike. And Mike's uh, he's a legend. He's been playing in different bands, either as the front person or a or supporting cast. He's been in a lot of bands. And he's been doing it for a long time. And it was just so cool to sit down and talk with him about his journey and his career and his life on the road. For those of you that don't know Mike Slomo Brenner, uh, he's a veteran of many bands and has recorded tracks on over 100 CDs of both independent and major label artists. How do I know that? I just read it right off of his Wikipedia page. But honestly, he, the dude's got a Wikipedia page, which is like, that that's saying something. Uh, he's been in bands that toured opening for Ben Folds 5, Los Lobos, Bare Naked Ladies, as well as uh, Steve Earle, which is insane. And he opened for the Jayhawks and Government Mule. He's been in a bunch of different bands. Uh, and he's just, like I said, he's a legend. And uh He's had a very interesting career as far as from top to bottom, like where he started as a music critic right out of college and then where he's at now playing on all kinds of records. And in the world where you could still tour and hopefully in the future world where we can again, he was touring with a band called Wild Pink, whose new record, A Billion Little Lights, has been getting all kinds of rave reviews and I've been seeing it all over the place and it's really exciting. And Mike talks a little bit about what it's like to be kind of the veteran guy um, playing the playing pedal steel in a band that's starting to get some attention. And uh, it was a great conversation. As far as dirtbags go or lifers, whatever you want to call those of us that have decided to spend a lot of our lives in shitty vans, driving around the country with smelly people of all genders and making music, those of us that have decided to do that with our lives, Mike is one of those that has just been doing it for a long time. He's made a career of it, and he's uh, he just uh, somehow maintained being one of the nicest, most down-to-earth people I've met. When he walked in to play at 
play on my new record, Honeysuckle Summer, at Headroom about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. Um, he, it was, it was just unbelievable it's watching him sit down. He's like, I got a couple ideas for this song, and then like, I think we're doing Miami, Arizona, and he just comes out with that, that riff that's like kind of all over the song. I was just like, holy shit! I just, you know, like. I had like a shit-eating grin on my face the entire time he's recording. It was such a pleasant and positive experience, and I just can't thank Mike enough for his work on the record and for sitting down and talking to me for this show that we've got here called A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. Now, speaking of my new record, Honeysuckle Summer, it is the sponsor of this week's podcast. It's been the sponsor of the past couple weeks' podcast. Essentially, I don't have anyone else trying to sponsor it, so I'm going to sponsor it myself with my new record. And I just want to take a quick moment to plug it. I want to tell you all that if you haven't listened to it, you should go check it out because most people that have gotten back to me have had really nice things to say about it. Well, the reviews are starting to come in, and even people that I've never met before are saying really nice things about it, which is really fucking cool. So please go check out Honeysuckle Summer on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, wherever it is you listen to music. If you'd like to order a vinyl copy of that on a clear blue vinyl and this gatefold packaging that looks amazing and it's got all the lyrics printed in it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful product as far as objectively, I think. you know, Even if it wasn't my record, I'd be like, wow, this is really pretty. This is really cool looking. So I know I'm kind of biased, but you should check it out, and you can get one at Bandcamp, charlesellsworth.bandcamp.com, and that's the best place for you to get a vinyl from me. If you're a supporter of this show or if you like my music, a great way to support what I'm doing is on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash charlesellsworth and check out all the different tiers I've got laid out in which you can support my music. We've got a lot of really cool content that's been coming out over the past several months, and there's even some stuff from the past couple of years, but we're really getting into our groove. We've got a weekly video series called Chuck's Riffs in which I pick a subject, and I just kind of riff on it for about 10, 15 minutes and then edit it down to a five-minute video so it's easier for you all to watch. You don't have to watch me just sitting there scratching my head for most of it because sometimes it's difficult for me to get a fully formed thought from my brain out of my mouth. It happens to the best of us. Sometimes there's a lot of dead space. No, but in all seriousness, go to patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth and check out the different tiers we've got. And you can choose an amount you're willing to contribute each month, and it all just helps me keep the lights on, have a budget for more projects, more videos, lots of stuff coming down the road, music videos, things for the new record, and Hopefully some more studio time to start making some more noise for another record down the road. So check out patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth. Last but not least, if you don't have the financial means to support the show right now or to buy a copy of Honeysuckle Summer, that's totally cool. A great way you can support the show and you can support my music is by sharing it with people. You can go to the iTunes store or the podcast app, leave us a rating and a review, and you can share it with anyone, you know, find the link, the copy link thing and share it with anyone you think would enjoy the show, would enjoy my conversation with Mike this week or last week's conversation with Joe. Next week, I've got another exciting guest. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too soon, but you're going to like it. So please share the show with your friends. Same with my new record, Honeysuckle Summer. If you've been listening to it and you enjoy it, or if you start listening to it and you enjoy it, 
find a friend or two or three or four or five that you think would dig the record because as a DIY artist, word of mouth is the biggest way I can find, my music can find new ears and it can reach new people. Word of mouth is, I swear to God, the best way. None of us really pay attention to anything online anymore. I Like, honestly, I don't, I look at Instagram for hours a day, but I don't even pay attention to anything that's really happening there. So that makes marketing for a small artist such as myself very difficult. So if you like an artist who's DIY independent like me or any others um, that you're just a big fan of, go scream it from the mountaintops. Share Music is meant to be shared. Go share it with your friends. Same with this podcast. If you enjoy what we talk about or the conversations we have, or if you're just fucking jonesing to get back out on the road again because the goddamn coronavirus has been fucking cramping on your style for a fucking year now, that makes two of us, brother. But anyways, please enjoy this show, this conversation that I had with my friend, Mike Slomo Brenner, and check out Wild Pink, their new record, A Billion Little Lights. Also check out Honeysuckle Summer, my new record, and share it with your friends. Enjoy the show. Safe travels. Welcome to A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. This is your host, uh, Charles Ellsworth, and I'm sitting here with my friend, Mike Slomo Brenner, and uh, just really excited to have you on the podcast, Mike. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Doing well. Um, so where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? Let's take it back to the very beginning. I grew up in Center City, Philadelphia. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. You've been here pretty much all along, other than when you're on the road touring and whatnot? I went to college for four years in Boston. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. What did you think of Boston? Great. Yeah. yeah. I, I hit it at a good... Um, you know, I was already into the music stuff, so mm-hmm. I, I had already been kind of, you know, playing some clubs in high school, and then when I got to Boston, I got into a band, and... It was like the let I you know I don't know what it's like now, but it was really um, a zillion clubs with three bands a night, seven nights a week, you know. Yeah. So it was like a wonderland for me, just totally. being like a, you know, a fan of going to see music and playing. And I wound up doing a lot of playing in Boston while I was there, which was cool. Uh huh. Cool. And I came back here. Yeah, and so I read that when you came back here, where you were working as a, a music writer in I Philly? was. Was yeah. that that was after college? Yep. Yeah, I did something school, you know, like the, the school the school newspaper, you know, yeah. doing music reviews, and then uh, I tried to do something like that here for a while, and um, and then I just sort of got back into playing, which was kind of what I wanted to do the whole time anyway. But totally. Yeah, do you remember what specifically like drew you back into playing music or um I mean, I, I guess I was trying to to see if I could you know, have a vocation in music writing. Okay. But I I guess I, I didn't feel like what you really had to do I wasn't so interested in as far as back then, you know, like what you really had to pursue to, to make a living or whatever, being like a a music writer or entertainment journalist and everything. I was sort of like, eh. And then 
I, I just, I just, you know, was more interested in the playing always anyway. I, mm. I guess I was just kind of testing the water. And I, I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed doing what I did, but I think when it came down to it, I just would rather be the one with the guitar, you know. Totally, yeah. yeah. Being the one on stage playing and... Not even yeah. on stage, but just be a part of the music part of it, the, you the know. The creation part, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. And that would be... It's... It's interesting because I've, th- I've thought about that before of like, oh, maybe it'd be a good thing to start, you know, reviewing bands or, or writing about music and things like that. And that, but like those lines between like artists and critic get blurred and you're like, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I was, and, and I was critiquing local music too. Mm-hmm. So at the time where I, I met, you know, I started, I, I was doing a story, of course, you know, I like this one band and um and I said, "Yeah, you know, I I play guitar kind of in the style of your of your band basically, mm-hmm. you know, like I know where you guys are coming from." And they said, "Oh, we should jam." So that led to them asking me to play. Uh-huh. And then at that point I didn't want to have those kind of weird lines and I just sort of abandoned the whole music writing thing. I was just like, oh, you know, I'm in, I'm back in the music. I'm yeah. back in the band thing. And this is, this is, I'm comfortable with this, but I can't keep slant, you know, I wasn't, well, there was some harsh criticism, but I probably, there's no way I could have continued being in a, a critic while, yeah. I'm, while I'm basically competing with, with these. Totally. Other, you know? When they're also your peers and it, it becomes a much more personal endeavor than just like an objective writer and and as a critic you you have to be objective in a way and it made for some uncomfortable moments uh during that transition i I mean i can clearly i was i was with with this band flight of mavis was the band that i joined and um we were opening up for someone and there was this other band kind of in the dressing room <laughs> who I'd given a bad review to, yeah. right? And they didn't really know that it was that I was in the room. Oh, okay. And um, you know, <laughs> hilarity hilarity follows, of course, you know. I mean I mean after a while I felt like I, people just accepted the fact that I was a player, but I think it was because I had stopped the writing. Okay, yeah. I mean, that, but, but yeah, in that transition, I mean, remember this guy said, like, you know, <laughs> if I, if I ever, you know, if I ever meet Mike Brenner, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things that I just sort of raised my hand, you know, here I am. That's really funny. Mm. I, I, this is like early 90s, late, late 80s. When, yeah, about yeah. what? That was, was very this? late 80s. And, uh, what, like what did how did we're kind of skipping back a bit but like where did music start for you was it a family thing something you were raised on or well i guess i should say partially my brother played drums in rock bands mm-hmm. he's, he's he's quite a bit older than me he's 12 years older than me okay, but yeah so he was kind of a long-haired totally dude and, and playing uh, that was my first experience of, like seeing a rock band like him and his all his friends who were, you know, like I said, they were a lot older than I was. They seemed really old at the time, but I was, you know, they were probably like 17. Uh-huh. And, um, and they used to play, it was so loud, you know, 
and uh and i used to sort of sneak in the back and that was my definitely my first experience with like that's a rock band you know right. it's cool and then i just got you know my, i think my sisters played like you know folk guitar uh-huh and, they, and that was you know the source of my first few instruments was certainly like hand-me-downs from from the sibs you come from a pretty big family uh two sisters and a brother oh, okay yeah so you just pretty much named them all <laughs> yeah and uh i'm from like a big family so as soon as i heard someone naming siblings i'm like oh are you also one of one of us i was the youngest like and then there was a gap you know like i was 10 years younger than the rest of them so by the time oh, okay. i was kind of conscious they were already kind of out of the house like fully yeah. formed adults sort of yeah, yeah yeah but um yeah i mean they certainly their record collections and they're kind of like 60s because they grew up in it you know so yeah. so their whole thing was definitely real influential to me my my parents weren't musicians but creative people totally and that i mean obviously i wasn't alive back then but it seems like that was that was how how it happened was passed down through like a, a record collection or you know hearing your brother play like i imagine for some reason sabbath or, or you know some yeah like, something like something that. like early 70s just like playing rock and roll and, yeah and you're a kid you're a literal like child just being that volume enveloped in that, that volume I, was just like wow it's so loud you know but i don't even know how loud it was but for you know for a little kid who's not hasn't you know had that experience just the drums alone it was super powerful right yeah totally that's uh it's the first that feeling in your i i don't even know if i can remember the first time i felt it but that like when you can feel the music resonating through your body yeah yeah and it's like and in the house too yeah. you know it's like you feel that bass you know and it's like what are they doing yeah. down there <laughs> it doesn't even have to sound good it's just it's just something yeah you know the, the eye rolls of the parents it's even that it adds to the pie you know it's yeah. just like this this is all good you know totally pissing them off it sounds like you know an army is advancing down the street or something like that yeah totally yeah. and so skipping back forward to when you kind of transitioned back into playing music what you were playing guitar for you named the band what was it again flight of mavis flight of mavis i mean i had played in, in a band in high school and i played a couple bands in college in boston and then when i got back i was sort of like i'm serious now you mm -hmm. know i'm a writer now i'm yeah. gonna do something like that then i <laughs> lasted like a year you know i mean i got a lot of writing gigs but uh-huh I just started to get kind of bored with that and I was itching to play. I, you know, I was playing the whole time. Yeah. But just not publicly. I, I, I get that. And that's a, such a, can be such an interesting time too. Cause like when I was in college, I spent two years in college where my band, like I moved to Salt Lake city and my band was still in Arizona and I was a bass player, but I booked all the gigs and booked the tours and, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, the least talented musician but i was good at networking yeah so they had me doing all that and so i moved to go to college and uh after a couple of years of kind of long distance playing together we all decided to like let's try and make a go at this and we did for like a year and it fell apart like bands do and i went back to school to you know i was just like i you know promised my parents i'd finish school because i you know i was like if i take a year off or whatever and try the music thing and it doesn't work out you know i'll get my degree 
and during the the remaining number of years while I'm getting my degree, I'm playing guitar every day. I'm writing songs. I'm falling so in love with just just that, just music and making and creating music. But like, there's no one to share it with. Yeah, yeah. And like being a my buddy Kirk Dath called himself. He was a closet closet musician for so long. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I can. What what was that time like for you? Um, I think I was even taking like jazz guitar lessons and I was kind of thinking, you know, I don't know. Now that I'm thinking about it, I, I can see parallels and other things that I did, but it was sort of like, I was trying to take steps to kind of move away from, you know, like being a, being a guy that plays in a band and clubs and being okay. kind of obsessed with that. So sort of like, I'm going to take jazz lessons. And I'm going to study jazz guitar. Okay. Like a serious student, you know, and I'm going to write about it, but you know, I'm going to do everything, but kind of get back into that thing. Yeah. So, um, would you think that was cause you thought you had like matured past it or. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I guess I felt in some kind of like silly way that, you know, now that I'm through college, you know, it's uh-huh. time to put things in, you know, do something productive or like, as opposed to just kind of doing what I was doing. Totally. No, that it's like a weird societal mold that you feel like you have to fit into. Get, and... It's not just get a job. I didn't think that that was so like difficult or like daunting or anything, but I guess I wanted to try to combine you know what what i loved with trying to make some money and mm-hmm. i guess you know and uh i mean it was cool in a lot of ways because writing involves like you say like networking and mm-hmm. meeting all if i hadn't done that year of intensive writing and especially about the local scene what happened next like i wouldn't have met any of those people i wound up meeting them all totally. doing the writing and then when I kind of got back into like, all right, well, I'm I'm playing in this, uh, you know, I'm playing in this rock and roll band, and now I'm sort of jonesing to get something of my of my own going on. Totally. And I kind of knew the landscape, the landscape of who who kind of interested me as far as musicians goes. Okay, yeah. And so when you did transition into doing your own thing, what did what did that look like? Were you like? I know, I, or did you already have all these songs banked that you wanted to like put a band together for, or was it kind of like a mixture of like I want to do this thing and I'm gonna start doing it, and or, you know like what what did that look like? Uh, it was, it was like part, you know, part happenstance. I met this one guy. I was working at this job uh, for KYW Radio, the news radio station. Was like an early job I had, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, this other desk assistant there, uh, we hit it off and we were, you know, we, we were hanging out and he said, oh, I play harmonica. I was like, oh, cool. So, you know, we started playing some music and that sounded good. And then, and then uh, I ran into this woman who I had seen her band and enjoyed and written about. And she, she was a great violinist and that, the three of us started playing some music and mm-hmm. that sounded pretty cool, you know, and then we added this, you know, and then 
after a while, you know, we started playing and it was just one of those things that, that people started liking it, you know. Yeah. It was kind of like a the early part of it, it just kind of gestated in a nice way. And I, the band was called The Low Road. Mm-hmm. And we wound up doing a couple of records on Caroline and touring yeah. and, you know. And I had read that. You did a, Caroline was an imprint of, or Passenger is an imprint of Caroline. Correct. And you would, tell me about that. Because, like, the landscape now, obviously, is completely different from the music scene. Like, there's similarities, but, like. You know, this is early to mid '90s. I'm, I imagine very early. Yeah. And you've got to be at that point if you're going to hit the road. You've got to you got to have a label. You got to have all these things. So, like, what did that that look like? Um, kind of getting that attention, and then you know, did, was it the classic like Wayne's World, like guy with a cigar, like, hey, you guys are going to go somewhere, kid? <laughs> you know, what did that look like? Uh, it never was that. I don't think. I think people thought we were an original and cool band but i don't think we ever said money to people you know what i mean it was kind of like a you know i mean maybe in some world i don't know i mean it was a very pop band like Uh acoustic pop band um it would definitely fit pretty well into the sort of americana-ish poppy americana-ish vibe now you know but Mm -hmm. at the time it was we were everyone was sort of in the backwash of uh like late 80s hair metal and Mm -hmm. um there was a moment where like an acoustic thing i thought was sort of happening just before like the whole grunge thing changed everything yeah it was kind of like this period where not you know like weirder kind of bands that weren't so sort of genre locked in Mm -hmm. were getting some attention and that was kind of that moment where i thought we we kind of crept in but um but mostly it was a it was a local thing you know okay i mean there were pockets little towns that we did well and we played a lot we toured a lot um but overall it was it was a philadelphia thing okay we did play cafe chenet in new york a lot and then um that was an exciting thing we kind of got signed out of there okay but that was this period where like jeff buckley was playing Mm -hmm. you know Sinead o'connor would just stop by you know totally it was fun um east village was really fun then too uh but the you know the the low roads arc was really like it, it started out as this dinky little coffee shop thing and evolved into like you know a pretty professional unit that had a couple records out and toured toured a lot yeah and then, you know, by six, seven years in, we weren't really moving up the old food chain there. And I yeah. think people people were looking up for all this stuff, including me. So Yeah, totally. I mean, projects hit a, there's a, I don't know, there's a shelf life. Yeah. You know, and I think about that, that movie, which was like really surprisingly influential to me when I was a kid, was that thing you do, the, the Tom Hanks movie. Sure, yeah. And I didn't really realize, I just loved rock and roll music. Yeah, yeah. And so anything I could grab onto... And but I the the drummer I forget his name is talking to the the old jazz drummer that he loves or piano player. And the guy's like, "How long have you guys been a band?" He's like, "Oh, just a few months." He's like, "You know, some bands I've been in that's a few months too long." And uh, you know, and it's it's like I I thought that that was really sad when I was younger, and yeah. especially having certain bands that like broke up and it felt like a divorce. It, it broke my heart. Yeah. And then I've had other projects that just be like, no, that definitely ran its course. And yeah. I don't feel bad or, or wrong about what went down. It just, it was just done. Gotta go. Yeah. It's, uh, th- what was Philadelphia like around this time? Because I, 
I personally like have just been getting more and more introduced to Philly since I came here to make the record last right, year. Right. And I've been here a couple times for shows, but I'm I'm more and more catching on to it's like they say when you start riding a motorcycle, you start noticing all these motorcycles on the road. <laughs> like I start noticing how much of a rock and roll city Philly is. It's and, uh it's changed a lot since then. I that was a really the early nineties was a, a super cool period um of Philly kind of I feel like kind of waking up a little bit because mm-hmm. in the 80s it was very sleepy you know and there was cool stuff going of course there's always creative people mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, you know in any town there's always like some pocket of creative stuff going on totally. but it wasn't very visible in the uh, uh I would say the late '80s Philadelphia club scene. You know, it was mm-hmm. sort of hmm, so some some good stuff. You know, pri- prior uh, in in a maybe ten years earlier, a lot of the clubs were. Um, you know, the Hooters were really big uh-huh. in the '80s, right? So a lot of bands were kind of that. You know, big guitars and everything, and mm-hmm. I think that had kind of gone gone its way. And I think in Philadelphia there was. People were just kind of waiting for bigger, bigger things to sort of pop up, you know, mm-hmm. since then. And um, uh, in the area that that I worked, Old City, like second and market area, mm-hmm. that was just coming to life. And a lot of clubs started popping up and it just seemed to be like kind of a hot spot for a while with like a really cool vibe like the galleries down there and uh-huh. they would do these first Fridays and there'd be this acoustic music and stuff like that. And I was booking some of the shows at this coffee shop and, uh-huh. and then the low road was playing, you know, the Kyber pass and other clubs in town. And it just seemed to be kind of like something awakening. You feel something going on. Yeah. Not necessarily like, like a, the music scene, although you know, it definitely, the music scene definitely grew up and all of a sudden there were like a lot of competent bands and totally. pe- people getting major label record deals and all that whole thing. And, yeah. Um, whereas it had been pretty quiet. Okay. Yeah, that's the vibe I was getting in a lot of ways in Salt Lake City when I was there. It was just like, we were always talking about, oh man, Salt Lake City's going to blow up. It's going to pop off. And eventually I was like, I got sick of waiting around for it to happen. Yeah. You know, and I moved to New York where everything's happening. And now a part of me is like, oh, it's like too much is happening. Yeah, right. You know, to it's like, I don't even know if I, if I really want to try and stand out here anymore. Um, the So take me, like after the low road kind of dissolves and, and you'll move on, what what was the next step for you? Well, at the end of the low road, I started dabbling in steel guitar, and that's when I started just, I I think I was sort of alluding to that, you know, that uh, I, I was basically done with, like, singing and leading a band. I was kind of burnt out of that, because mm-hmm. low road was my thing, you know, and I was just, not that I took it as, you know, a singular personal failure, but I was kind of like, I don't really, I'm not wanting to do this again. Totally. It's a such an exhausting. I've thought about that being like, I've been performing under my own name for so long now, almost a decade, and it's like, I'm like, oh man, maybe I should try something new. But the idea of starting something from scratch is like, at that point, I might as well just start a new 
career in a well, way. Well, I basically did. <laughs> you know? I basically And you started playing slide and steel guitar? Yeah, from, from, from the ground up. I mean, I, I don't, even during the low road, I don't even think I knew, you know, the differences between like a lap steel and a pedal steel and what a dobro was and uh-huh. all these things, you know. And, but just at the end, I started getting a super into um, dobro and bluegrass music. Uh-huh. And I think that at the end of that band, that provided me kind of like an off-ramp, you know, of like totally. I can sort of dig into a new musical project but not feel like I'm still doing like playing the same guitar things that I always do, you know. And mm-hmm. it just gave me a place to start new. And um, and I love the sound of the steel. I, the, especially at the, at the time that Dobro just kept jumping out at me. And so I was like, what is that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, is that the, like the bottleneck thing in there? No, that's Jerry Douglas playing a square neck Dobro. And I'm like, oh, oh. And I just, I just was basically like, I want that's what I want to do. I want to play that instrument. And then everything else kind of came from there. I, I started playing, uh, in a local thing that I can remain in called John Train. We play Mm -hmm. Fergie's pub during non-pandemic times. Uh And, uh. Uh, I sort of learned from there and then I joined a band called Marah and mm-hmm. uh, I sort of shifted over to lap steel because they were like more of a rock and roll thing. Yeah. And kind of, you could take all the six string dobro skills onto a six string electric lap steel tuned the same way pretty well. Uh-huh. And ever since then, it's just been, you know, I've had a project that was mine called slow-mo Um that went through various phases, but it's been, you know, besides that, it's just been learning, learning to play steel better and supporting people's projects live and in the studio. Mm-hmm. So it was really that ending of the low road that kind of like, that was kind of the, like a midpoint almost. Yeah. And then everything after that has been about playing steel guitar for me. It's really cool. Is it? It seems like in some ways you were able, like you know, you you made you, you started your project from the ground up. You were writing these songs. You got signed to a label. Got to tour it. You know, it got to live like a, a life. Like so many bands are like, they feel like they break up or fall apart before their time. Right, right. And they right. can feel that way. But then you were able to kind of just put this, in a way, put a pin in it and move in and be like, okay, now, I want to shift into this sort of thing. And what. What it's like slow mos from what I understand turned into like a like a very collaborative type thing or you're it's what I've I, I, tell just tell me more about it because it's a, a it my, seems like the slow mo project yeah it was um I was really lucky man I, I I made some really kind of funny demos a couple of the tunes were like you know like done really you know uh emotional and like meant something another one was just a joke really and it was like a a a dobro bluegrass riff set to like a house beat uh-huh and and the chorus was she's a cunt she's a cunt she's a country girl uh-huh. and i had this girl uh jenny benford who i i work with she's on the molina records that i'm on and she was playing around philly and she had that kind of old time voice so i I sampled her uh-huh. and I did this kind of, you know, it was kind of a novelty tune, like totally. with steel guitar samples, my playing, but sampled and done in sort of like a house, dum, 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 you know, uh-huh. 
and it got into the hands of that uh, label Bong Load that had put out the first Beck record and a uh-huh. bunch of other stuff. Yeah. And I wound up doing a record with them, and it was kind of like, okay, it's called Slow Mo. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, that was sort of a nickname from the past. And then um, that was the beginning of it. I had to kind of like invent the rest of the project mm-hmm. because it was kind of that song and a couple other things that had made them interested. So I went out to LA and did, did a record out there. It's such a different time, like uh, where yeah. where they just hear a record or a song, and be like, "We we, we want a full record from you. Come to LA and make one." Uh, that's yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't. It was kind of like they listened to the demo. This guy Tom Rothrock, who did uh, he produced. Um, the Beck record uh, with Loser on it mm-hmm. with uh, his producer, Rob Schnoff. They, they were the, the two partners of Bangla. And, uh, and I was, I basically lied and said, Hey, I'm going to be out in LA. You know, maybe we could, you know, like say hi or something like that. Mm-hmm. When it was all like, I was like, I'm going to LA to meet these guys, you know, totally. And, uh, um, crashed on this guy's couch, you know, and then this guy took a meeting with me and, I brought the dobro over and we were hanging around. I was playing and everything. And basically at the end, at the end of the meeting, it was like, Oh, we should do a record. And it's like, ah, oh, awesome. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was the so goal great. all along. So, uh, you know, and it continued from there. You know, the, the, the record came out. It was cool. Uh, and then I wanted to continue the project and wound up just doing like a local thing that wound up being bigger on a local level. And it was, that was a collaboration with this rapper named Mike Recca. Mm-hmm. And so the second slow-mo, re- the first slow-mo record was almost, you know, it had that kind of white boy Beck kind of sample totally humorous, you know. And then the second record, um, the key points of it were um, me and this guy, Mike Recca, did some tunes together and they were really pretty catchy and like xpn was playing the shit out of him for almost like a year solid and that so after that the band kind of morphed into this like girl singers and keyboards and neon steel and it was a big kind of party type thing Mm -hmm. and um and that existed for pretty strong up until like oh five no that's not true well yeah I'm getting all the timelines messed up because I was also playing with Moran doing the Jason Molina thing. Yeah. But it basically everything kind of, the, the touring kind of ended in 05 when Ruby was born mm-hmm. and then slow-mo was continuing and slow-mo continued really strong up until about, I guess like 2010. Okay. It was a popular local thing. Like yeah. we, XPM was behind it. We played a million clubs. We didn't really have a lot of pretensions to like the label touring thing. It was uh-huh. more just like play locally, make some money, have fun, put totally. some records out. Yeah, yeah. Have pe- people enjoy the shows, and that's really cool. I mean, we were a couple. It was like three of us were fathers. That you know, uh-huh. like kind of new fathers too. You know, yeah. like young kids. So it was sort of we did a little bit of traveling, but it wasn't. It wasn't what I was doing before. Mm-hmm. And with Mara, I I listened to 
the that oh, what was it? what was their bigger record? Uh, Kids in Philly. Kids in Philly. Yeah, 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 that's the one. I listened to that yesterday and uh, or the day before. I can't remember. It was and it's a fantastic record. Really so great cool record. You, you should guys... re- listen to the first one too. That's, really, I think that's even more audacious. The um, it's called "Let's Cut the Crap and Hook Up Later Tonight" or something like that. It's, yeah, let's I, cut the crap is what I they're... read that title and but I hadn't listened to it. It's so. amazing. Yeah, those guys were they had such bottled up young creativity that just mm-hmm. was like blah, boom from Conchahawken, you know totally these two brothers they just and especially this guy paul uh um paul smith i'm sorry uh he engineered both of those records and he he played a huge part in in, in kind of channeling that creativity it was i mean being from the west coast it might be part of the culprit but i was surprised listening to that mara record that i hadn't heard it before yeah you know and i, and I know that it's pretty like it, it still wxpn still loves that record or, or they you know like what i just based on what i read online it's like it's there's a very uh or like a lot of people in philly really really love that record specifically um i think what came after that record is that they, they sort of tried something and it didn't go down so well mm-hmm the next record following that when everyone was like give me more yeah and like we toured i that's when i was touring with them was on that record and like touring opening for steve earl in europe and across the states and i thought we were killing you know and especially in europe people were kind of like what you know because yeah it was loud it was brash it was americana but it had this kind of um uh, sort of medley kind of punk aggression totally in, in the in the performances especially mm-hmm. but um they kind of they kind of went in a funny direction for the next one and and I think it it just kind of it Didn't took go well yeah and to their credit they bounced back and and sort of did put a another um and and still exist you know uh-huh. but um they they wound up kind of bouncing back and putting some good records together, but it's it that's a tough juncture to really. You know this world. It's you're supposed to go like this. Yeah. People don't have time for you know when the arc, kind of settles or goes down and then goes up. You know what I mean? Totally. Like the story, the arc is supposed to go, you know, from the first floor to the penthouse, and that's it. Yeah, you know? just one one floor at a time. No stops. No down. I mean, yeah. this was a particularly kind of like jarring turn that they took really when because i mean when i listen to that record i it's yeah it seems like a like in a way that like accounting crows that'll punch you in the face you know like it's yeah, a stonesy bass yeah like i was just and maybe the counting crows thing is just the timeline in a way um but i uh i really i don't know i i um it is interesting that nowadays I was just talking to my buddy Kirk about this on podcast. I don't know if this one will come out or that one sooner, but um, about how it can feel so daunting these days because it's it's all it's all you and and it's versus the internet, which is just this like empty vast void or whatever that just like goes on forever, and, uh, and it can be really exhausting. But I tried to tell him I was like. Yeah, but you you have control over it. You can do whatever you want with it. Whereas, 
like it does it's it's less that like gets on the, the first floor and ends up at the penthouse you know like because yeah, yeah. you get to garner your audience it's not just like you know i feel like a lot of especially major label or the way that music worked before is just like blast this out as much as possible in front of as many people as possible and hope we retain those fans whereas now it's like whatever way you can just gain them one at a time and yeah it's a little more freeing i feel like yeah if you look at it that way it can be really daunting yeah i mean it's it's so much about the bottom line you know it's like yeah x dollars we put it we put it you know x amount of dollars to make this record and you know and you need this many units to like make it look good you know and totally. it's like luckily i mean I, I guess it's still the same but it's 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 of course it, that hard product out the out the store of the record store is has gone by the wayside for the most part but yeah. i just man i just think yeah to launch anything is so difficult um and it's weird uh uh you know i'm on this wild pink record mm-hmm. this is a band that, they're based out of brooklyn also yeah yeah I, i've seen you post a little bit about them so um and they just they just released a record last week okay. and i gotta tell you i've never been part of a project that has had this much exposure like oh, on cool. the internet like it's just like basically every possible pitchfork and this and this yeah and this and this and this and like and like another 15 websites i've never even heard of like mm-hmm. i've never been part of something that has been reviewed so so uh you know just just the quantity alone yeah as like wow like this is what it looks like when your your project is trying is really being launched in a an effective way I don't totally know. yeah i mean it's like wow you can't say that this wasn't exposed you know <laughs> totally we'll see what happens i mean things nice things are happening but it's so much of i think everyone's work for the most part is just under the radar until it's not you know yeah. and then why it is part of the radar is almost out of your control it could be just someone heard something yesterday you know totally it's it's a weird it's really easy for me to get lost in in the wrong parts of it you know being about to release a record and no one's reviewing it you know right, and, yeah, and yeah. that sort of thing and, and you're like i had my you know you spend this money on a publicist and then they send you emails that are just like sorry you know you're like why did i even pay you like nobody has to pay me up front for the work that i do as a musician um but i gotta pay everyone else up front you know you, you can start getting really down on yourself and then two days later i get an email from him being like no so-and-so wants to review the record but and like turns my day completely around uh, yeah it's, so i guess the question i would ask is have you learned anything as far as in the, um like you changing your approach to to music like I, um are there ways that you you try to not get so close to it or or, or manage expectations like what, what would you say is well i'd say that you know the position that i'm in where i can kind of um 
collaborate, you know, add my creativity to a project, especially with the recording, let's mm -hmm. say the recording. Um, that That's such a nice way to exist, you know, because you share in the creative excitement mm -hmm. of the final product or, or of even, you know, um, I know initially people were like, ah, I've never done this remote thing, you know, and it's like, it's easy you know yeah, what i mean it's totally. like it's actually so less painful you i know? checked so much of the record from home once we ran out of studio time and i was like oh i actually really love doing this in my bedroom <laughs> like okay yeah i mean like and then i love know, being in the studio too don't get me wrong like that's an amazing experience i do but for the remote thing when when you either like the people are in london and and it's a necessity or 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 we're in like plague time and it's mm -hmm. a necessity so now we're going to this remote thing and i guess what i'm trying to say is despite that there is still creative energy and like even if it's by email like uh -huh. it's such a great feeling to get like all right you know i did all these tracks edit edited them like and it's here's the way i think it's going to sit and mm -hmm. I'm and I send a mix off, you know, to the artist or or maybe it's the producer that's handling it, whatever. Wow. <laughs> and I basically like and then the email back. And and it can be wow. a variety of things, of course. The the best thing is like the artist loves it, you know. Yeah. Well, I love this. This is the best thing I've ever heard. You know, mm -hmm. just send me the wave and like we're done. And it's totally. just like and I get to share in that kind of like yes like a successful collaboration or it can be like can you fix this you know yeah, it's totally. like and it kind of delays it you know it happens where it's just like this is not quite where i was thinking mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like you know all right there's going to be more emails and more mixes and like it, i didn't like get the the bullseye on the first you know totally but there's still that that great kind of creative collaboration going even in a remote via email way mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like he's over there behind the glass or you know whatever totally. and um i still sort of like get to get to share in that and then especially cool when there's attention on it and even whether i'm like kind of obligated to do a gig or do a record release party you know mm -hmm. or do something like or like you know um follow through with anything i still get like a buzz out of the exposure to that you know whether i'm mentioned or not but it's totally. like awesome i'm part of this project that's yeah. like you know gaining some whatever you know mm -hmm. and i guess ultimately it's strengthened my impression that the only thing <laughs> that I find to be super gratifying is the playing of the instrument and, mm -hmm. and like that, that whatever the collaboration is, if it's like, I'm sitting there with you and you're going like, no, the other part, you know, and, or, or we're emailing and, and it's like every 10 minutes you say, that's good, but I think you're out of tune on this part, you know, or something like mm -hmm. that, that I still just love that. And I yeah. don't, and, I, and I'm so grateful that, I'm involved in all these projects, but I don't have to like do the, the, the selling, you know, or uh -huh. the asking or the paying to other people to ask, you know, cause that's really difficult and really gets you like, 
ah, fuck, I didn't get this, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got this. Yeah. Oh, I didn't get this. I did it. Uh, you know, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's, it's a, a lot. I'm in it right now. Uh, yeah. No, I've certainly been in it. I've, like, speaking from experience, I mean, even beyond, prior to the internet, you know, yeah. being on a record label was just excruciatingly, excruciatingly stressful at times. And it's the thing that you were working for, you know, and it's just like, this isn't any fun at all, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's the, I don't know, force for the trees is the right, right expression, but like the, or, I mean, I, I started therapy a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and, and something that my therapist pointed out to me, she's like, you live your life in a way where you're perpetually putting off your happiness because you're like planning a tour three months from now or a record release six months from now. Or, and in your head, you're going to be happy once this thing is done. <laughs> but right now, you've just got to do the work to make sure that thing happens. And the problem is, you're not living your life and you're not enjoying it day by day. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and that was really like, that, that really put me in my place, you know, because I've been doing this for close to a decade, you know, right. at that point. Now, close to a decade. But like, and it, it really kind of made me realize like, and it's, it's been a process ever since of like, what do I enjoy? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Does the simple math add up? You know, because at the end of the day, what I fell in love with is just playing a guitar. You know, put yeah. tying some some clever lyrics to a melody. That's what I fell in love with. Whether or not my record sales or my vinyl shows up on time is now ruining my day. <laughs> All I wanted to do was play my guitar. That's difficult. I know. I mean, the internet has certainly allowed people in many ways to be their own. You know their own enterprise which mm-hmm. is awesome but but now you have to run your own enterprise totally yeah so and that's different that to do it well to do anything well it's difficult you know yeah no i it's a it's an interesting practice it's a daily practice to try and try and get back to like what's the meat and potatoes what do i love here what do i what actually is like fueling my engine you know? yeah and what else yeah. is just bullshit i know i mean this was a, a funny time. I, I, I was busy during the pandemic, but um, what was also interesting was I did um, a lot of stuff just prior to the p- pandemic, and your your music I would include that in, mm-hmm. and then stuff starts to come out, and it's kind of illusionary, like people go damn you're really busy these days Uh that's just no that's just the stuff i did four or five months ago Uh that's just finding its way you know through that process to being ready to be released and now it's released and now you know you're seeing some articles here and there on this and that and it's it's like i'm not doing anything right now yeah but i but i i sense that that kind of like yeah you're you're involved with a you know a lot of projects right now it's like well <laughs> you totally. know it, it's kind of uh you, you you do get that sense of what uh exposure gives you mm-hmm. like a lot of exposure man you got stuff going on it's like yeah, yeah okay <laughs> yeah it's, no it, i see what you're saying about how it's it can, it can be a complete and total illusion though Oh, yeah, because it's, um, it, well, it's the the what's water thing. Is that who? Oh man, what's the name? Infinite Jest. Uh, I'm bad at names sometimes. Oh uh, yeah, David Foster Wallace. He did a, a 
speech about essentially like you know like what the older fish asks like the young fish is looking for the ocean the older fish fish is like well how's the water today and the younger fish is like what's water you know like it's uh it's just like you i don't know you you're too close to it to even have any idea and then i I don't know the things that don't really really matter or that don't really hold weight other people notice in a way it's I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's just a, it's a difficult endeavor to like remain both kind of weightless and balanced at the same time because mm-hmm. you just have to kind of roll through it, you know, but it, I, I, I am grateful for my role in it because I realize that I don't feel, um, you know, uh, I empathize with, with the artists that are trying to like push their stuff mm-hmm. to get some sunlight, you know, because mm-hmm. I know how difficult that is. But um, I guess it's just, I'm, I'm just sort of a layer or so away from the heart of it that, mm-hmm. that you know, um, I, I think I get to rejoice and maybe, you know, the, the, when, when, the, when the triumphs happen, uh-huh. It's not like I, I realize it's not my triumph, but I can rejoice. And at the same time, if like things don't work out, it's like it's I guess it's not super heartbreaking to me. The weight isn't so heavy. Yeah, not as heavy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm no, kind of like, all right, well, let's get the next one going. You know, that's, uh, the attitude I try and have now is that because I you reach a certain point because you just think all along. It's like this is the thing that's going to do the thing. You know, and then you start reaching a certain point. It's like, no, it's just another step towards the next step, you know? And it's like, and like, essentially, like, if you want to be really um, negative about it, it's like, this is the next step towards death. But like, like, that's like the actual thing, you know what I mean? Everything else is just like another step in life or, you know, it's all part of the the fluid movement of of a life. I mean, I, I like to think that... Even even if, you know, X project has this massive success in whatever way you define success, okay? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're just this, you know, obscure writer and your song gets picked to be on this massive commercial. Mm-hmm. And then you're not an obscure writer. You're, you're the writer that is on the, the Pepsi ad, you know, yeah. that everyone's hearing. And, and you get whatever benefits or you know, demerits, (laughs) (laughs) whatever comes with that, that, you know, exposure, which can be great. I guaranteed that next year after that, people will be like, well, what's, what what are you doing now? Yeah. And that's like the, that's like after the most ginormous success by your own definition, right? Totally. Like, this is the biggest thing. This is exactly what I want, you know? And then the next year people are like, so, you know, have you been doing anything no, since your ginormous success? And it's just like, it's the same <laughs> question that someone would have asked you if you had just put out some record and 500 that. people bought it. Yeah. What are you doing since then? Totally. So it's kind of like, fuck off. Yeah, for you sure. know? Even people are asking Beyonce, what's after Lemonade? You know, right, like, right. and you don't, I don't think you make a better record than Lemonade, but like people are, or Graceland or, you know what I mean? It's like, someone's like, yeah, every like even Paul Simon's got to follow up Graceland. Uh, that's, so a, that's a really good point. 
and um, I don't know. There's a lot to be learned from that. So it's almost like why jack up your life with these expectations when even if the best thing happens, totally. you're still going to be facing that same question next year. Yep. The steps you're going to be, you're still going to be taking kind of similar steps, just like with more or less money in your pocket or whatever. <laughs> maybe, you know? Yeah. Maybe you're real on a, maybe you'll be on a roll. Maybe you've just like pissed away all your money up your nose. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and now you're, and now you're screwed and people are like, now what are you doing? This is like, uh, yeah. you know, you might be in that position. You don't totally. know. It doesn't matter that you had that success a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, and it's like, and that's not a way of being not, it doesn't matter in like, don't try or anything. Like, it's just like, don't get caught up in the dumb bullshit. That I would really like that. There's so much to that, that I'm going to hold on to. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really, that's really cool. Um, I want like, a, you know, you keep, you brought up Molina, Jason Molina records mm-hmm. and, I wanted to, I want your story, you know, like, and I know you've played with him and it's, I'm a big fan of his, but, and I, so I, you know, it's, it's just like a weird, um, thing to bring up, but were, when you were playing with him, uh, did you, cause it's, it, it's like a lot like the Velvet Underground, how like nobody bought that first record, but everyone that did started a band <laughs> right, right. and like, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like Jason Molina's that way. Like he wasn't like the most popular songwriter in his lifetime, but like, so many of my my peers look up to his songwriting um so like while you were playing with him did you know that like what what was it like what was it like the first time you met jason and we can all go go as in depth as you want or not you know uh i met him uh i was living around here i was in fishtown i was doing a lot of work at the studio called sound gun uh, and my friend Edon Cohen was the owner and the engineer there. And it's, it's just it's just down the road. It's like North American and Diamond or something. So it's right in this neighborhood. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right, like, over there. But um, right, my stomach just won't be quiet. <laughs> uh, and I, I got this phone call, and he said, yeah, I got this Songs Ohio over here, Jason Molina. And I was like, heard of him. And he said, yeah, they were looking for an upright player, but we can't find an upright player. And uh, he knew that I had, I had sort of built this slide, ba- this bass lap steel. Uh-huh. It was a real bass guitar, like kind of set up like a lap steel. So yeah. you could get this kind of cello-y kind of... Yeah. You know? and, um, and they said, so he said, well, I suggested bringing you over and seeing if that works for him. And I said, oh, I'll come over. And, uh, you know, he... He thought it was cool and, and we cut a couple of tracks and and then I you know the funny story I've told other people this but I, I said I, I said to Edan after we cut this one track and, and Melina said yeah that's cool that, that that's the one you know and I said Edan let me uh give me another track and let me um let me cut an overdub on the steel with my lap steel you know mm-hmm. so it sound like sort of string section like cello and violin you know yeah totally and uh and Edan's kind of like, uh, and then Melina just kind of, kind of flips out in the background. No overdubs, you know. Oh. I had no idea that it was like kind of that thing. Like oh, gotcha. Super live and no dubs and everything. And, oh, yeah. And I was like, I looked at Edan, you know, I was like, and he just kind of, kind of waved it off. And then 
I don't know if we just kind of persisted or Melina just said, well, what is, show me what it's going to sound like, you know? Uh-huh. So, of course, I wound up kind of getting it on there. And, um, but, you know, I, I got a taste of his, a bit of his kind of wackiness, you know? Yeah. And then, the uh, and then like a year later, I guess I got a call out of nowhere. He said, we're, we're recording this record at Steve Albini's in Chicago. Can you come? And it was like, it was like next week, you know? And I said, uh, yeah, 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 of course. And then. I said, you, you know, and he said, it's a big ensemble. Jenny Benford, she was in the, 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 the Edon session was Didn't It Rain. Oh, okay, yeah. And Jenny Benford was singing on that too. And he said, Jenny Benford's going to be there. And that's probably all you know, but it's like 12 other people or whatever. Yeah. And we're, we're going for like full live ensemble takes. And I was like, oh, well, you got to get me the tunes because I, I want to, you know, I don't, if you're not going to be rehearsing, you know. Yeah. And he, he sent me the CD and I was kind of expecting more didn't it rain kind of like two chord minimalist super dark jams you know yeah. which I'm super into yeah like, I sure. really liked didn't it rain and I liked his writing a lot and um and I was kind of expecting that thinking like ah, I'll be able you know I'll listen to all these tunes I'll be like oh, this is D you know and like because you know it didn't rain for the yeah. most part it's fairly very bare arrangements and very stripped down chord progressions, you know. Totally. But then I hear the demos to the Magnolia Electric Company. Yeah. It was just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, it was like, it, 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 I remember how stunned I was, like, hearing um, uh, Hold On Magnolia the first time. Yeah. It was like, what is this this is like hank williams or something like that like yeah. this is crazy good you know mm-hmm. and deceptive chords yeah like what especially that tune which i'm convinced is just like weirdly like b section a section if you ever try to learn it yeah other people would be like i'm crazy but man it just took me so long to get that progression down and i was like i gotta learn like real parts for all this you know and so I crammed, you know, I flew into Chicago and a big crowd of musicians all setting up and I knew no one. And, and I was kind of like, had all these parts and like intros and I was like, you know, we'd get to this tune and I'd say like, I had this intro in the first two bars, like Farewell Transmission. Mm-hmm, yeah. And Molina was just like, okay, just play it. And I was like, do you want to hear it before we start? And he goes, no, nah, just play it. <laughs> And so he was really generous, you know, uh, yeah. with, um, with like that tune and, uh, uh, simple has a big steel beginning to it. Yeah. And he was just like, yeah, that sounds cool. You know? And I always was very grateful for his attitude like that. Totally. But, um, touring, touring with him started off pretty cool, but then became kind of the more his problems kind of manifested. Yeah. Touring with him was, was, um, problematic for me. Yeah. I, for uh, everyone, but for me, I, I just was, I just couldn't take playing shows that were effed up, you know? Yeah. Well, when the, the, the music, which is why everyone's there takes a back seat, you know? And, and I know that his, 
his problems were were and I didn't you know beyond just partying you know oh, like, yeah. obviously it's not like, a lot of partying but obviously yeah. it's a it's a chemical dependency at that point and it's uh but yeah it can be like especially I had to look at my life at a certain point and, and Jason dying actually I was on tour with my buddy Trace and we were both kind of on the path of like give us five more years of what we're doing we're just gonna be drinking one of us was gonna kill ourselves yeah, drinking. yeah. and uh I remember when Jason passed being like, like that, that was a big eye opener for me. And a few years later, I was just like done with booze altogether, yeah. you know, cause it, cause it's so, I think can so quickly go from being a, um, a fun thing that people do to like, you know, ruining lives. So, yeah, I don't, yeah. He was just, you know, I, I'm a little uncomfortable talking about that aspect of his life. It, I recommend reading that book. Um, Aaron Osmond's book, uh, Riding with the Ghost, mm-hmm. that kind of gets into it as as much as you want, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but um. Yeah, I never drinking with him was a weird thing. <clears throat> I don't, I don't ever remember hanging out with him having beers or yeah. any, you know, it was something totally something unto itself for for Jason, unfortunately. Um, yeah. You know, and it's hard to listen to this music, of course, without, you know, it's hard to listen to it post-mortem, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and not hear that kind of pain in, in his lyrics and stuff like that. And um, But it, uh, you know, it was cool as uh, I, most recently, but on a it's going on like th- four or five different runs now, but uh, uh, le- last year, <laughs> 2019, um, uh, the Molina, uh, the Magnolia Electric with Tim Showalter from Strand of Oaks, mm-hmm. we did two weeks in Europe as like kind of a Molina tribute. Oh, cool. I didn't know that that was a thing. We And we'd, we had done that before. It's called like Songs Molina. Okay. And we we've done it uh we did one run with um MC Taylor uh uh what's his thing um I'm trying to think I'll I'll figure it out. He uh what is his uh that'll sound terrible on air if I can't remember his uh MC Taylor was the singer and then uh this guy Joe O'Connell from Elephant Micah did it, mm-hmm. and um, and Tim did it, and that and that was the the longest tour that we did. We we did like UK and then Scandinavia for a week. It was phenomenal, and you know, bittersweet, of course, because there's people like openly weeping in the audience through every yeah. show. But bittersweet for me because the songs, the, the shows sounded so good. Mm-hmm. And it's the same songs and it's the same musicians, but it's not the guy that's like impaired leading it, you know? Yeah. And it just it just made me so sort of mad, you know? Like every 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 show should have, should have sounded this way, yeah. you know? But... He was sick, so you know mm-hmm. I don't I don't blame him in that way. I don't mean to sound insensitive to that, but no, I don't think you sound insensitive. But when you're up on stage, it's another thing where you're under a microscope, and when things aren't going the right way, night after night, 
And for me, it's like sacrilege. It's like, it's like you're pissing on my church altar, you know, and yeah. I, it's the only thing I have that resembles a religion. And, and I don't care where I am. It's like, you know, I could be in Trenton or I could be in Vienna. It's like, don't fuck up the show. Yeah. I yeah. don't care if you get like wasted afterwards, but like, God. So there came, obviously there came to a, a point where I think the two of us had had enough of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think they played for another two years. And then he was sort of off on his kind of like attempted rehab for a, a certain period. And then his organs gave out. Mm -hmm. He was like 39 years old. It's just staggering. You so know? sad. Mm. I can't, I can't imagine. I, I don't want to sound insensitive at all bringing it up, but it's like a big party. Your story, and I wanted to yeah, it's ask weird. about it. it it's, it's weird, like, playing kind of a bit part. And you're talking about, like, while we were doing it, there, I thought that there seemed to be, like, wow, this is, this, especially early on, I was like, damn, you know, people really know who this guy is, and mm -hmm. I, I had no idea, you know. And we would do shows that, you know, four or five hundred people would sell yeah. out in Europe and, and, and around here and um, it seemed to be really gaining strength to me especially after that Magnolia Electric record mm -hmm. um, what's crazy now uh, I ran into some kids touring with Wild Pink uh, we played some gig and uh, John from Wild Pink the singer he, he was talking to this guy we were staying at, he was he booked the show and he, we were staying at his house and um you know he said i'm, I'm in this band and, and john said well who are you into and he goes ah you know do, have you heard of jason molina <laughs> and i kind of cut out at that point i didn't really want to like get too into it but you know i mean if this guy was alive when we were playing he was just barely alive really yeah i mean i stopped playing with jason in 04 yeah that's true all right and i started listening to him actually around that time you know he died was... in uh oh eight was it oh eight am i wrong oh i i just feel like that it was no. more recent than that but i think I, you're right it was more but recent. i don't uh <laughs> i don't know with the past that's the you, you said last year and then kind of chuckled it's like that time has just become so it's like it seems i'm in the same neighborhood where we made the record about a year ago and it's like nothing's changed but everything's changed oh yeah it's crazy it's weird so time is not real yeah, yeah. i remember the uh, jason growth the guitar player in magnolia electric calling me and i was at i was at my job at the time and i hadn't really you know i was kind of I got along really well with the band dudes. I got mm -hmm. along really well with Jason, but I, you know, it's just hard to deal with someone in addiction like that. Because mm -hmm. I found, you know, certainly early in our relationship when we were just working together, like I say, he was super, super generous and funny, you know. But God, the road was not a good place for that dude to be. Mm -hmm. It just seemed he just didn't enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. It's not very healthy for anyone, but you c if you don't enjoy the shows, this is my opinion, if you don't enjoy the shows, the idea that you're going to be on the road and playing every night 
Like, that's what I look forward that's to. That's the saving grace. That's the only thing I like yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the only, literally, is that I get to play every night. And my playing changes over, like, a six-month, yeah. I mean, like, say, a six-week um, stretch, you know. Yeah. Six weeks of playing almost every night, you start to really, you know. Get good. Start to get yeah. into your jam, you know. I, I still, my, I've never been able to make it happen, but my dream is, like, book, like, a, 10 day tour where you're playing like maybe four nights on and then two nights off and then four more nights and then you go make a record yeah sure you know like that i've never been able to make it happen but like that tightness with the band when you're on tour is just like magnolia did that we we just come home from europe and like basically that we did one record like that we came home from i don't know if it was such a good thing at the time (laughs) but that's what we did we you know it was like seven weeks in europe and then we flew home to chicago and went right into albini's place and started cutting like next day i think we were all fried that might be a little much for me (laughs) i love being on the road and i i i think but there's so much about it if you don't remember you don't think about the you're there for those two hours every night yeah that's yeah. it everything else is just getting to those two hours and it's so easy there's so many distractions and it's so easy to not to forget about that yeah and uh i uh i have that it's it's a it's a big problem for me is is getting caught up in all the bullshit and not enjoying those two hours and if it's if it lasts any more than a a couple of weeks and going into the studio afterwards i don't think i'd be in the right headspace yeah 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 it's exhausting what do you uh um and i I, i've taken tons of your time i really appreciate it but uh what being someone who's toured now um essentially across three different decades what um i mean yeah i toured like 1990 was the low road began i had been doing some stuff with that band that we mentioned that began flight of mavis but really let's say 1990 and i toured pretty solid until uh 05 which is when ruby was born Mm -hmm. and i was at that point i left song i left magnolia electric company i had had enough and i left Mm marana and i had had enough sort of similar reasons but i think i had just burnt myself into a crisp totally and then um, my partner and I uh, had a child. And then, you know, really it's been, I did little bits and pieces of touring as I was, you know, um, tr- trying to help raise a child. But mostly it's, you know, as parents know, it's like, you know, it's a, it's expensive and there's, you know, lots of responsibility. So I wasn't, mm-hmm. I sort of put a lot of my crazy more manic side of music making and the desire to to do that i could i definitely sort of put that aside mm-hmm. but it was in the, like the last five years i think when ruby became like 10 and 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 began needing of course like less and less supervision and i started being able to get into my practice sessions where i could be Un- uninterrupted for like you know first it was like cool i got an hour and a half in today yeah. you know and then like you know a couple months later wow i played for like two and a half hours straight until now now she's 
she's a teenager and doesn't want me even in the same house. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I started to feel myself kind of shifting back into those that music mode where I'm like ravenous to play for hours. That's just sort of my thing. I just sort of just practice whatever instrument or what I have to do for, you know, a session or something. I just sort of trance out for long stretches and just kind of get into it. And, and now I feel, you know, I feel myself being able to do that on a consistent basis. Um, it, it almost didn't surprise me that, work started to start like to to kind of pick up Mm -hmm. almost around the same time when i could kind of extend my you know these these kind of practice sessions like i have a theory about like the energy that produces totally yeah (laughs) i mean you know well and something you said earlier that i wanted to say about the like even though you're not in the studio and, and you're remotely doing these things it doesn't mean that that creative project whatever it is doesn't have like it's a life force you know yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's like it's a life a life form you know like bob weir of the grateful dead i heard him say like um that a song's like from another dimension and like at some point like the muse will just like tap you on the head it's like here check this out and then it's your job to wrestle it out of that dimension and <laughs> figure out whatever the hell it wants to be and i and i think it's the same thing as like a song whether you're collaborating on it in a studio or remotely or whatever that it still has that life form i believe that and that life energy and uh it doesn't it doesn't change it whether it's going through online or in person no not at all um with the with your experience and how things have changed and obviously the the music industry has just got turned on its head in the past however many years since you started what what advice would you have like do you have any like rules of the road like I have a rule of just don't break the law when you're breaking the law. If you got weed, don't speed. You know, like it's, uh, um, that, that's like a, a really simple example. But like, do you have any rules or advice that you'd give to people that are like, you know, once this pandemic is over going on their first tour? Uh, well, going on the first tour, boy, that'll be fun. I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking on, looking forward to, I'm hoping that I get to go out with Wild Pink for some dates. See if, if there's enthusiasm for the record at that point, you know? Yeah. But, um, uh, I just think that, that show, you know, there's not much of an industry left. You still need great record labels and I'm, and, and, the setup for this wild pink record i have to say i have to really tip my hat to these um, folks in canada that they're working with royal mountain mm-hmm. did a, a really nice job so when you have a great record label that's cool you know totally um and i guess at the same time the only thing that's really going to make your reputation as a long-standing act that people are going to go see over and over is how great you are live. Mm-hmm. And that's just connected to like how seriously you take your musicianship, you know? Yeah. So if I was a band now intent on touring, let's say a year from now, when, when let's, let's, let's imagine that things are all opened up and, there's lots of clubs and beer flowing clubs and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Man, if you could 
you have a year to practice your shit. You could practice. You could practice three times a week. You have nothing else going. On. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I would get my shit so tight and so outrageously good. You know, there's no excuse. You have so much time to put your stuff together. Because there's really, uh, for me, I just I don't I don't I don't like to settle for anything less than that. You know. Yeah. Um, I like that a lot. I just think uh, that's. You know, you want to put on shows of any variety that make people want to see it again and tell other people to come with them. And yeah. If you can't do that, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? The next tour is not going to go as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the system is you, you, you tour in small places and then the next time you come back, it's bigger places. Yeah. So being someone who's toured a lot and it's just always been small places. I realized that like a lot of that touring was wasted energy because and not not that I regret being on the road at all. I, I like that's how I've defined myself as a human is learning through DIY touring in a sure. lot of ways. But what I'm saying is a lot of those tours were wasted energy because I was the priority wasn't sounding as good as possible and putting on mm. as good of a show as possible. The mm. priority was sex drugs and rock and roll or whatever <laughs> any number of things right right that it's like well yeah you you made some good party friends but like have they listened to your records in the year it's been since you were in town last no and are they coming to the show no because because that that wasn't the relationship that was yeah. made you know yeah and so many of my friends when i when i stopped drinking were like well, like, why would I come to the shows now? Like, it's we, we, we come to your shows for the party, not the music. And and you, then that's an eye-opening experience where you're like, oh, oh, the music's got to be on a certain level, you know? So I, I really I appreciate what you're saying about that. That's, uh, I mean, yeah, I, the, the, the artists and the acts that I've, that I've toured with that I feel have, have you know sounded great mm -hmm. it's rarely a surprise to to see thing good things happening for them mm -hmm. along along you know a a um a parallel things going on you know what i mean totally it just i don't know why that is it's just if you have a band that's just kind of playing like shit i just don't expect good things to happen totally, for sure <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just that way. It's, uh, and it's also knowing what you want out of it. If your bands, if you, what you want is it's for you and your friends to get cheap beer on the weekends, then that's fine. I don't, yeah, I don't sniff at anything. Yeah. But it's, but also like, don't be upset that you're not getting the major label deal or whatever. When it's, when you and your friends are just trying to get cheap beer on the weekends, yeah. that's because it's, because they're, you can, you can, they're, they're two very different things. Absolutely. Um, before I let you go, is there anything specific you want to plug? I want, what's the name of the Wild Pink record that you... Oh, uh, A Billion Little Lights on uh, Royal Mountain. I uh, I met them through actually a Craigslist ad. <clears throat> and um, that has blossomed into such an awesome thing. It was yeah. like from a Craigslist ad to... You know, it played a few gigs. I, I have to say, though, that when I researched them... They already had the, the previous record out, Yoke in the Fur, and that is a fantastic record. Cool. So it was like, oh, 
You mean like I get to play with these guys? Because it was really. I think when I when I see ads for pedal steel. Um, the the vast majority would be of a country twang mm-hmm. nature, you know, yeah. uh, which I'm into. Um, I'm not I'm not like a dyed in the wool country swing guy or anything like that. Like mm-hmm. that's not really my language, you know. Yeah. Um, so so a lot of those types of ads, I'll be like, mm, you know, there's other guys that can play that type of material a lot better than I can. Totally. Um, but then every once in a while, very rarely, but every once in a while, you answer an ad and it's like, here's some samples of, you know, like, here's our last record. And then you turn it on. It's like, oh, shit, really? Uh-huh. Awesome. Like yeah. everything I like, you know, like just all sorts of cool, creative and like with them particularly, there was like an 80s thing going through it mm-hmm. with some synths and, and a little twang and strings and stuff like that that it was such a pleasant surprise and then we did we did a bunch of shows and they were doing all these like trying to find a label so we were doing all these um and they had different management but real management so we were doing all these pretty big venues in new york and brooklyn and stuff like that trying to get in front of all these like label people and uh a a cool process but kind of frustrating you know it's like it involved me like jumping on a bus after work with my gear, mm-hmm. getting the sound check, doing the gig, cab to Penn Station, jumping on a train, getting back to Trenton. And you know, and it was like, but I was, but I was behind the act, and to have that, like, say, about two and a half years worth of that type of gig and a little sort of low rent touring, culminate in a record coming out that's getting like massive exposure. Yeah, all from one Craigslist ad. It's pretty cool really cool yeah (laughs) it's nice and and it's a band that i recognized immediately as like having a great positive creative Mm -hmm. putting stuff out there working really hard and lo and behold it's like good things happen you know yeah so i i just always point to that i just think i have no proof to i have no proof it's all sort of like metaphysics but i think just just practicing an hours of st- stuff on you and your instrument and like a metronome is so far more useful than like a spending an hour on the internet like yeah it's so it does such good like mind health things yeah and that energy i think goes out i know i'm sounding like total like crystal you're the right place for this podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah i don't know i haven't really gotten into crystals yet but i know i'm very much like put the right energy out manifest the thing you know like if, if you want something go out there and fucking like figure out how to make it happen and i've not... seen it yeah i've seen it i've seen people race ahead of me like doing whatever like you know when like i had a band you know mm-hmm. and and you see someone just so like having their thing so like down mm-hmm. and like confident and and really doing whatever they're doing really well uh and and just all of a sudden it's just like hey did you hear they got like they got this prize it's mm-hmm. like wow really and it, yeah for me it was like do, do you know who g love is uh-huh yeah 
from Philly. Yeah. Okay. I actually booked him like like a very you know super early gig like you know at a, at this coffee shop that I was working when he was Garrett Dutton the third. But um, and we've stayed friendly through, over the years. Very nice guy. But he was like he came back from like a summer in Boston after his senior year in high school. And he had changed from this kind of like very precocious blues bottleneck mm-hmm. playing young kid. Uh, tall, good looking, looked like Elvis. And uh, he came back from Boston after meeting some of these guys and jamming with them. And he had that kind of kind of more of a hip hop mm-hmm. patois to him. And he started playing those songs from the, his first record, um, My Baby God Sauce. I don't know if you know any of his tunes, but like... I don't, I don't he, know his tunes. I know his name, though. Man, it was just like, it was like lightning. You know, he just immediately got signed to Sony Records. And it was like, I think at that time, I might have been thinking like, I sort of had something going on, you know? Mm-hmm. But then you see this kid just kind of like rocket past you. And it's like, you know why? It's because he just had his thing together. Totally. Well, and I think that's, and uh, I, uh, I might be just projecting or filling in the blanks here, but like him leaving and then coming back with like a new idea of himself within the same context. Absolutely. It's uh, one of my favorite, I think it's a Ron Doss quote, but, or no, Alan Watts, you, you, you have no obligation to be the same person you were 15 minutes ago. And that's such a, once again, like the internet can be a very daunting like expansive expansive void of possibility they're not void but like possibilities any possibility but then you you kind of harness it into like I don't ever have to be what people expect me to be and I don't ever have to be what I expect me to be I can be what I want to be and it sounds like that's kind of what he did and he just stepped into it and it just boom you know that's I, I really genuinely believe that that's that's the way to do it it was it was like I mean you just had to be like damn like this is the kid that i gave the the 25 dollar gig to at the uh-huh. coffee shop he spends a summer in boston and comes back and it's like wow it's like elvis you know yeah um that's really cool yeah and it was you know suddenly it was like you know selling out the tla for the record release it was like what i mean yeah. it was definitely an eye-opener for me like mm-hmm. you know just like yeah i think that that idea of reinvention is dead on and and also just being so fresh and so good and just kind of undeniable you know and yeah it's like wow you attract if you're if you and it's, it's so hard to dial that in it's not something that you can be like you know today i'm gonna like yeah reinvent myself and but i think he worked so hard he really did he he was not just some kind of like bedroom wanker he he had like the blues style down and he studied with like this older guy in town and he took these roots styles for like a 17 year old mm-hmm. kid and you know in high school it was just kind of like really wow i mean it was cool that's awesome yeah so i think it all came from that you know the work invested in what you're supposedly doing playing music you know or writing or whatever and uh I just think it all comes from that. I think that might be a little bit, you know, Pollyanna 
high in the sky, but that's been my experience over 30 years doing this, that it's just uh-huh. like, it's, it's the people that make you go, wow. It's like, that's, that's, that's where the energy comes from, you know? Totally. Yeah. I, I agree. Well, Mike, it's been, this has been such a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you. My having pleasure, me. man. Thanks and for coming over. Is there anything, uh, can they find can the listeners find you on the internet or if they anyone anyone wants to potentially contact you for yeah that's um, a good idea you, for mike, session gigs mike brenner mike slow-mo brenner on facebook you're welcome to drop me a line that way i like i like doing uh remote tracks with uh with new artists i haven't heard of so uh drop me a line cool thanks so much mike and uh Thank you all for tuning in for to a dirtbag's guide to life on the road. Uh, have yourself a great week and safe travels. <laughs>